Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in uh, the second year of our triennial cycle, so we are in the second third of every Torah portion, which puts us, uh, I go according to Hebkal, um, there is, in the back of our um, Sidur, in the back of the Kolonisha Ma prayer book, there is a breakdown of the triennial readings uh, as well, if you ever want to know from home. Or you uh, can ask uh, Bert. Or you <laughs> could ask Bert. <laughs> always. And I'm looking up in the book. That, that, <laughs> always, that is an option. So we are, uh, therefore, in our second year triennial division, we are in chapter 11 of the book of Exodus, the middle hunk of Parshat Bo. And it starts at verse 4. We've studied the plague narrative, and we are now at the final three. The final three just ended of the set of 333. Well, what does 333 make? Indeed. So the 333 set, it was not a trick question, um, that we just closed, right, is its own grouping, and now we're going to get the big one. So Pharaoh's been given three sets of three to change his mind, to comply, and he has not. We just had the final showdown between Moshe and Aaron and Paro, who says uh, at the end of chapter 10, uh, Pharaoh says, be gone from me and take care that I don't see you again because, right, if I see you again, you're going to die. Dead meat. Dead meat. And Moshe says, oh, ho, 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 you are so right. You have spoken rightly, says Moshe in verse 29. It is so true. I will not be seeing your face again, but not because of why you think, right? So that is what brought us out of chapter 10. And so God speaks to Moshe at the beginning of this parsha, saying that God is going to bring one more plague upon Paro and upon Egypt. Uh, after that, he will let you go and he's going to drive you out, right? So he's going to not only let you go, but he's after this, He's going to drive you out of here. And the people are to take gold and silver from the Egyptians who would be favorably disposed towards the Israelites and give them stuff uh, and reparations. And then um, we get to our verse, verse 4. All right, someone want to begin? Moses said, thus says Adonai, Toward midnight I will go forth among the Egyptians, and every male firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, and all the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a loud cry in all the land of Egypt, such as has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall snarl at any of the Israelites, at human or beast, in order that you may know that Adonai makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Then all these courtiers of yours shall come down to me and bow low to me, saying, Depart you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will depart. And he left Pharaoh's presence in hot anger. So we're getting this kind of back-and-forthness that is very kind of confusing. 
He just left Pharaoh at the end of 10. Then God speaks to him at the beginning of 11. And now it seems that Moses is in Pharaoh's presence again. Right? It doesn't say he went back to the palace. Right? So it's this is a very rough, confusing um, part of our narrative. Uh, so whenever we see it in movies, they've already had to make a choice right, about how this unfolded because it's not here. It's really ragged here. Um, so this sense of kind of chaos, impending chaos, the the in-betweenness, the tension, the building, right? It, this is one of the literary narratives we've seen, I mean, uh, literary devices we've seen before in Torah, that when everything is feeling kind of jerky, confusing, same thing at Sinai, right? It's overwhelming. It's hard to put into words. It's a little, it's overwhelming for the people. It's a, then then we get this ragged narrative that doesn't flow easily. This is major chutzpah. And... <laughs> And then content-wise, right, this is chutzpah, right, that it seems that Moshe is uh, is saying to Paro. Uh, and so he's he's furious, um, which is interesting, right, that Moshe is furious. He doesn't even wait for an answer. No. He, he turns just, he and lays it leaves, on. which one does not do to royalty. But we also have not followed the narrative. You know, we break it up by weeks, and then we're only reading a third. So what, what we what we haven't been reading is the crescendo, right? It's that we're coming to the crescendo. We haven't read the buildup. That slowly, 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 Paro starts to lose authority. And he's lost his ministers. He's lost his officials. They've all... They're all saying, let these people go. Like, what is it going to take, right? So he's lost all support. Um, he's getting more and more, we talked about this last week, right? He's getting more and more internally terrified of his own lack of authority, you know, power. So he's getting more rigid, more, um, what word did we use last week that was so good? Um, anyway, stuck. he's stuck. And, but he becomes more and more, you know, tyrannical in his trying to cling to power. Uh, and so th- that that's all rising. Uh, and now it's the the last of the last. And Moshe's just had it with this guy, like who will not acquiesce, no matter what the suffering to Egypt or you know the devastation that it's causing. And Moshe's had it. When every plague's been building up and building up so that the drama's increasing, it keeps getting worse and worse. Yes. It sort of must feel awful <clears throat> to have to announce the firstborn would die. Yeah. Right? And what pa- a position to be, in, to be the one that delivers that message. Part of me wonders what it means for a child who was given up because his life was in danger. His life is saved, right? Because they're, the babies were demanded to be, that Pharaoh ordered that they be killed, and now Moshe has to deliver an edict to Paro saying, the, the God that I worship is going to slay your babies? I mean, I, and not even babies, like, you know, grown people. And so um, it, it has to be a really awful, awful message that Moshe is tasked with delivering, uh, and and there's a part of me that fantasizes Moshe is not just angry with Paro, yeah. uh, right? Yeah. That what, what right? he's put in a position. He's he's now being put in a position to be the agent for a god who's gonna kill the fir- the firstborn of Egypt. Like what the position that puts him in the fact maybe he's not so pleased with God. 
You're at, you're you're asking me to do what? Like you're telling me that you, that I'm going to tell tell them what what? Right. So I think on every level, and this is not the last time we're going to see Moshe put in a really awful position. I think this is kind of the great theme of Moshe's life, which is the great pain of leadership, right? The incredible pain of what it means to know what might even have to be done, but to have to give the order for the troops to drop the bomb. I mean, you know, you just have to think that the cost of leadership here is that, you know, he's in hot anger. This is, right, this is Hari'af. This is his nostrils flaring. Where do we know that metaphor from in Torah? The flaring of the nostrils. When God's nostrils flare, terrible, terrible things happen. So Moshe, they're using, the narrator's using of Moshe the same language that's used of God. When God gets angry. And when God gets angry, what happens, right? So, you know, Moshe is embodying, you know, this kind of rage on the one hand, this outraged indignation at, at Paro and the oppression and the devastation it's causing. And I really think it's, it's, Moshe's more complicated. I think Moshe's being put in a really awful position. Sounds like when he gets angry at the Israelites for the golden there's a couple times where he has to Loses deal it. with that emotion. Right, that's right. Leader. That's right. And um, when he hits the rock instead of speaking to it, right? Ultimately, it costs Moshe his entrance into the promised land. But I, frankly, don't blame him. My bar mitzvah student who's speaking on this parsha this week says Moshe was selfish. He was self-centered. He thought he was such a big shot. And he gets frustrated because he's not getting his way. And, like, he's very clear that Moshe's ego was in the way. And I was just like, wow. Like, I just have such a different experience of Moshe. I get it why Moshe gets so mad. I get it. If you saw the news since last night, the king of Saudi Arabia passed away. And and you see all these pictures of him and, and the court. And the the pharaoh had to be like that times a thousand. But we don't experience that, kind of like a king or a pharaoh. I mean, I guess a little bit with the president. It's kind of whoever he is or she is, kind of awesome. But it's not, right, right. But I mean, you see the deference to the king of Saudi Arabia, I'm sure, to the pharaoh, it was more intense. Mm -hmm. And you didn't, you know, if you look at the picture of the king of Saudi Arabia and imagine some upstart Jewish guy coming in and screaming at him and turning Let the women drive! That's it, and I'm out of here. Right? Yeah. Right? All right. Don't even go there. I heard that story about the guy who got lashes, and then they had to see if he was healed enough to get 50 lashes the next day, and his back wasn't healed enough. All right. Someone, I know, right? All right, someone read at 12. Chapter 12. I am not to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. This month shall mark for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Oh, did I skip? Mm-hmm. Did I? Sorry, I skipped. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry, so we're, we're, we're at 11.9, is that where we are? Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yes. All right, someone read 11.9. 
Now I'm not. <laughs> 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 Pharaoh will not be here in order that my marvels may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron had performed all these marvels before Pharaoh, but Adonai had stiffened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go from his land. So we've had some conversation about this hardening of the heart business. So last week we talked at great length about kaved, right? Heavy that it's the word used of the chariot wheels in the mud, stuck, but is also the word for kavod, glory, right? Honor, respect. So, you know, so we played with that whole concept last week that Pharaoh has gotten just completely impermeable. Like he's just unmovable at this point. Um, so there's lots of discussion, as we said last week, in the rabbinic literature about when is it paro strengthened. Remember last week, by yechazek paro, right? He's strengthened his heart. And then it seems that once you do that enough, say the rabbis, you're kind of like the universe takes over and finishes the job, right? So God just kind of reinforces what paro has already chosen um, for himself because, of course, the rabbis need to... <coughs> deal with what seems like a fairly troubling aspect of the divine that would strengthen, that would harden Pharaoh's heart in order to bring this plague about, in order to increase God's kavod, God's reputation. It's almost like without those marvels, the Jewish people really couldn't have been free like it's that's the only way I could see justifying it. There was no Say more. negotiation or cut cut that they could do because that would have broken down eventually the Egyptians would still have had power. I mean, in my mind, trying to justify why God would do this is that's what I think. But I still think it's wrong. <laughs> I still think it's wrong, Jesus. Right. So, um, you know, if we... Mm-hmm. If you think of World War II and uh, what we So, so the only difference here is that dropping the bomb because the enemy wouldn't come to the table is one thing. To cause the enemy not to come to the table so that you can drop the bomb is what we seem to be dealing with here. The rabbis go all kinds of ways, twist themselves like pretzels to get around what it looks like. But it looks like God has in some way participated in making Pharaoh say no or or um, having Pharaoh's orientation keep growing in no, th- that God's glory might be, right, made manifest in this final plague. That, that, that's the, the heart of the troubling part of this. Beth, are you going to say something? I was just going to say to follow what Linda was saying. I don't know if there's a thought behind it could be that to actually get all of these people to leave Egypt and to follow Moses almost blindly and to go into the sea without knowing what was going to happen to them, there had to be some very extreme acts. So that it's not really about God's name being made great just because but it's because only a God that powerful and that great would be a force that these people would actually follow or listen to to go out. So I want to... Or the Jewish people would believe that the sea would part for them. Or, I mean... That they would have enough faith to walk out of Egypt and challenge their oppressors. So I want you to hold that thought 
as we look at the Passover offering, because Aviva Zornberg is going to play a little bit with that and in a really nice way. I mean, nice. I mean, in a really powerful way. All right. The, the other thing for me, to go to your point, Linda, um, is that that I can't, part of being able to deal with this for me is that it's it's not literal. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I would have to really struggle to save this if I needed to, but I don't need to, right? This is the narrator. This is the mythology of of our people. And I think largely it's about this kind of, you know, what is it going to take, you know, to have a people follow, you know, but I don't need to rescue this because I don't believe it's history. <clears throat> Does that make sense? I can kind of hold the the fact that this is not the kind of God we would describe. This is not the kind of God we would want to be in relationship to that's okay for me because it's the character of God in our sacred mythology and it was editorial choices for lots of reasons in a thousand years if someone were looking at the measles outbreak they could say these these people that went to evil Disneyland they they were plagued with this rash and they died and they had brain damage because of the disnification of our society It's interesting, though, that God here, it, it, it's interesting what God doesn't give as the reason. So God The is reason for what? For, for the, the death of the firstborn. Those could have said, God could have said, to punish, okay? Or because the Egyptians are evil. Or because I want to destroy them. So instead, it's what? And God says, just because I'm trying to do these marvels, because I'm trying to trying to make a point between me and Pharaoh. Because yeah, that's better. So, well, no, it's not better for the people who die, for sure. That's the only way I can get you out of here. It's not, it's not better for the people who die. And so, of course, God didn't need to do all these plagues and all this stuff. And, and we have to remember that this is a story about about yud heh over and against, to Bert's point, the, the God of Egypt. And the gods of Egypt. Egypt was a culture obsessed with death. Very focused on death. So if your God is going to be taken seriously, yeah, your God better deal in death. Or If you look at it in a modern context, it's much more confusing than if you consider the time correct. where power was everything. You correct. Know, you really had to show that you were the most powerful person of God in order for people to follow you. Because Which we don't have to do today, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right? Thank God. You know, I mean, no, I get your point. I get your point. We do it differently. Yes. The the beginning of the months. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the tenth of this month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let it share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby in proportion to the number of persons. You shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts 
and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted, head, legs, and entrails over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. Go on. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is a Passover offering to Adonai. For that night I will go through the land of Egypt and strike down every male firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human and beast, and I will met out punishments to all the gods of Egypt, I, Adonai. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you so that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right. So to your point earlier, Beth, this observance of the Passover, first of all, this is such an important event. It's going to restart the entire history of the people of Israel. They are now going to be a people in special relationship to yod heh Therefore, this shall now be the beginning of time for you. This shall be the first month. Because of this redemptive act, because of what's about to happen, this is the beginning of your time, people Israel, as a people. So... Um, the months are given in Torah on the 14th day of the seventh month, right? It's, it's ordinal numbers. First month, second month, just like the days of the week. Yom Rishon, Yom Sheni, Yom Shlishi. First day, second day, third day of the week. We don't get names. We don't get Thursday or November, right? We get ordinal numbers, possibly because in the ancient world, the names of the months were associated with deities, right? And so, you know, to, to make a real break from all of the pagan connections from the calendar, um, they just went month one, month two, month three. This is to be month one for you. And there seems to be something special about the, the first decade of the month. <clears throat> so the first decade of the month in this case is the, is this taking of the lamb, right? We have the same thing in the seventh month. The first decade of the seventh month, that day 10, what happens in the seventh month? Yom Kippur. What happens four days later here on the full moon, mid-month, mid-lunar month? The lamb is slaughtered. What happens after that in the seventh month? Sukkot. The tie between that decade and... And a festival seems to be very old. There are some theories that say they used to be together. And because you needed a solar calendar also for agriculture and a lunar calendar, they kind of get broken up a little bit. Other people say there's something sacred about the first 10 and then full moon. We don't know. I mean, we, you know, we're arguing from absence and silence, but there is definitely a relationship between that 10 and 14. So take, so, so we are getting God's commandment to take that lamb, designate it on the 10th, and it has to be without blemish. Watch over it, make sure it doesn't get blemished until the 14th. So we can, we can understand that there's a relationship between the first decade of the month and the full moon. Textually, we have to ask the question, though, because you don't make this up out of nowhere. You just, just don't stick a text on top of a, 
a date system that already is there. There has to be some thought about it. So, so they take the animal on the tenth and they hang on to it for four days. What's up with that? So all of this, this is not to commemorate the Passover. The Passover hasn't happened yet. So they have no evidence that the Passover, in fact, would happen. They had to go on the commandment. They had to go on the word. They had to follow this commandment. This is the only commandment, the first commandment right? that, that were given as a people outside of Sinai. It's given when they're still in Egypt. This is the commandment. And it shall be so for all time, our text says. Why this commandment? Why is this commandment the only one given outside of Sinai? The rabbis have lots of literature about that, as you can imagine. But for us, I think it's critical to remember that they follow this commandment based on faith alone. They have no indication about a Passover. Faith and fear. Because it might be true, and I don't want to be wrong, I, maybe I'll take that last communion or whatever it is, just in case everybody... Cover your bases. Right. So, yes, Sarah? Um, the fact that you are sharing this with another family is uh, evidence of not going it alone, but being part of a community. And that's a better way to travel. <laughs> this is, right? This is not a solo flight. Right? But this, this Literally, is, I get it, flight. <laughs> <laughs> this is almost, by modern terms, socialist or communist in the sense that if you don't, if I understand this properly, that if, if the household is too small for a lamb... To afford a lamb. To afford a lamb... Then you share it with your neighbor, and it's a portion in proportion to the number of people in the in the household. And usually, the number of people for a lamb would be about thirty. Mm. Lois, how about their will to be free? Hmm? How about their will to be free? What about their will to be free? So in the context of all that we've said, I want to read, for, I'm not, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to go back to chapter 8, verse 22 for a reason. God says that, to say to Pharaoh that, that you're going to come sacrifice, right, to, God, to your God. And Moses, Moses replies to God in chapter 8, verse 22, it would not be right to do this. For what we sacrifice to Adonai, our God, is untouchable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice, meaning what we sacrifice to you, is not okay with the Egyptians. If we sacrifice that which is untouchable to the Egyptians before their very eyes, will they not stone us? And now God is asking that they do exactly that. So we're not making it up that they might be afraid. We just got told by Moshe that it is likely they would be stoned to death for sacrificing the kinds of animals that they sacrifice to God, either because they are cultic symbols to the Egyptians of their gods, 
and or it's taboo, you know, to Egyptians to do that for religious reasons. So in either case, to take one of those taboo animals and hang out with it for four days, oh, that's a that's a lot to ask of a people who thinks it might be stoned to death by their oppressors for sacrificing that animal. Robert? Well, yeah, just, just to kind of take point, uh, it's not just one or two. It, it, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of them, it's right? Gonna, it's going to be very obvious. It's going to be extremely obvious. Very noisy. All of a sudden, right. the Israelites all have a goat or a lamb in the backyard. And also, just before this, I never read before that Pharaoh was going to let let Moses go as long as he left all the animals behind. And Moses said, no, the animals are coming with us too. Which I, when I read that earlier, I thought, well, that seems kind of like <coughs> Moses, he could have gone before the 10th plague. But apparently the animals were very important to I, both Moses and Pharaoh. I was in Dakar, Senegal earlier this year. And it was right before there's a Muslim feast that I believe is related to this. The, uh, forget the name of it. In any event, all over the city, they were selling goats on the street. There were big goat markets. And I was told people, they go and they buy the goats. And then there's one night, and I was not there that night, where in the whole city, all you hear is the sound of goats because everybody slaughters them on the same night and the families eat them. So, Aviva Zorenberg, and we're going to go to her in a minute, her, she she talks about that noise yeah. is the same night coming out of every Israelite house as what's coming out of Egyptians' houses. It is a night of absolute terror. The screaming of the lambs, if you saw the movie Silence of the Lambs, some of us can never, ever, ever unsee the images from that film. The screaming of the lambs is absolutely the counterpoint to the screaming in every Egyptian home. In the dark. Yes. Yes. So, because we'll see it. Um, So just hold that image, right? That's what we're dealing with here. The night of terror. All right. So they, how are they supposed to to eat this? They, so you shall keep it, watch over it till the 14th day, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. So, so kind of the... Yes. So then they're going to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. Right? They're supposed to eat it uh, roasted, not boiled, unleavened bread to eat with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, which of course we're going to see later as symbols. Yes, uh, we're always told as kids that they're eating unleavened bread because they were in a rush leaving. So it's not really. The That's exactly right. It begs the question of the first Pesach. The first Pesach is not the bread of liberation. It is lechem oni. It is the bread of affliction. This is why on Pesach, for me, matzah is such an incredible symbol that we skip right over. Because it is both lechem oni and freedom. It is 
the taste of affliction as well as you know our remembrance of liberation. It is a much more complicated symbol than we generally anymore attend to. So there's no reason why this verse not verse eight is with unleavened bread. That wasn't because they were in a rush or anything. It's just because they were commanded to eat it that way. So in general, sacrifices were eaten with unleavened bread. So it's not terribly unusual. However, this matzah can't be the matzah that they ate because they left in haste. Right, that's a story we have told. That's another that's another story. That goes to the festival of unleavened bread. Right? We've talked about this before. We have two festivals put together here. The lambing festival of the semi-nomadic pastoralists wedded to, that was its own one-day festival, the Pesach. And then we have this other seven-day festival of the new grain from the settled agriculturalists. That you took new grain only, you didn't use any starter, you didn't use anything from last harvest, which means you didn't have any leavening. So you ate only new grain, only unleavened new grain for seven days. Those two festivals get put together. Because you have to you have to answer both the semi-nomadic pastoralists in the spring, if you want a new religion in the neighborhood, and your settled farmers. They both have to have their spring festival or they ain't gonna be Yudhe Vove people. Right? They're not they're not gonna buy the new religion. You gotta have a tree in the house in the winter. You can call it whatever you want, but if you don't have a tree in the winter, your pagans are not coming along, <laughs> right? So, so we have it put together here, but clearly what we don't pay a lot of attention to, which thank you for lifting that up, is that this matzah is not matzah of liberation. So why do they have the stash in their hand? It sounded like you wanted them ready to go, like to walk in. So, so now we're going to keep that image, Laura, very good, because Aviva Zorenberg says, imagine every Israelite household is girded, booted, backpacks on, there to eat this while the houses of the Egyptians are filled with screaming, right? And... so she she gives this wonderful description that we'll see of kind of this this readiness to leave and yet paralysis. God says, Mm-mm, not until. Right? So they're booted, their backpacks are on, and they gotta eat this hurriedly, but not until I say. Not until morning. They've gotta stay on their side of the of the doorpost, right, until morning. So it's this what she calls tableau of readiness. And paralysis, right? It's this paralysis. They're all dressed. They're ready to go, and they can't go. They're they're trapped in this in this moment. So it's it's an incredible, incredible scene. There's another interesting image here in connection with the mezuzot, because they're putting blood on the mezuzah, basically, and then later we the mezuzah gets changed into something else. So. So presumably, in Egyptian there. practice, there would have been no mezuzah. So the, that reference to writing it on the doorposts, right, is is a Sinaitic reference, but it's Here in... Here to put the blood on the mezuzah. But, but so that the, the words from Sinai then get put on their doorposts. Mm-hmm. There is no word from Sinai yet to go on right, the doorposts. Right. This is pre-mezuzah, mm-hmm. right? So what was written, interestingly enough... What was written on the doorposts of the house in Egypt 
In Egypt, when something was going to be eternal, it was in stone. So the pyramids are made out of huge, right, gargantuoid blocks of stone because it would be an eternal monument, right, to Pharaoh. So anything that was going to be eternal, temples were made out of stone. It's what would last. Most people couldn't afford to build houses out of stone, and in an earthquake area, that's not how you build. Uh, it was mud brick, except for the doorposts, uh, the lintel and the doorposts. They would have been often the thing made out of stone. And you would carve on the doorpost the name of the family who lived there, because that would last through an earthquake, you know, through whatever that and we and we have found them from antiquity. So they weren't wrong, right? That, that lasts a lot longer. So one interpretation I've read that I love is that they were asked to cover the names that were supposed to live eternally mm-hmm. on the doorpost because now you will be following the eternal. You are leaving behind Egypt's ways and your own grandiosity or the grandiosity modeled by the Egyptians of here's what's important, here's what lasts, you will cover that with the blood of the lamb as you move to follow Yudhe For me, of course, we cannot ignore the imagery of birth. This is the birth of a nation, right? This is the birth of a people. We cannot but mark the fact that they are going through a bloody passage. It's also you, you, a public declaration of Jew, of ah, So we're not sure if it's. So some people say it's visible from the outside. Other people say because it says it shall be a sign to you that it's on the inside of the house. Let it be a sign to you of your first act of buying in to freedom. To Lois's point, let this be for you a sign of your first real steps into believing the possibility of redemption is real. And they got to hang out with that until morning. And if, is the takeaway, I mean, that I've never thought about before, that, is it to your point that this literally is the birth of the Jewish people? Yes. That what were they before? So uh, we're told they were, even as they leave, an Erev Rav, a mixed multitude. So some would have been descendants of this clan, Abraham's clan, um, but a mixed multitude suggests they had other folk with them who this were. Had, this was the actual coming together of the Jewish people. So the moment they, yes, so this is when they become a nation. They become the Jewish people at Sinai. So this is the beginning, but the covenantal relationship is for the whole people happens at Sinai. <clears throat> But you don't get Sinai without blood on the doorpost and risk and terror and buying in. They had to buy in. Is this ever talked about in relation to Passover? I mean, the birth of the Jews? I never heard of that. I know. And, uh, yeah, there's so for me, there's a lot of mixed blessings about staying with the text of the Haggadah, right? So much as I am attached as a traditionalist to the text of the Haggadah, there's a part of me that's like... 
chuck it out the window with ten planes and then the finger and then the you know and let's just take this out and let's read this, which was the original commandment that you're going to tell this story every year at this time. Like part of me would love to just go back and let's just open the Torah at our tables and let's let's talk about all of this. Let's let's explore the narrative and explore the story and forget all this. This was a self-buying. Four sons and what? The people people had to, the individuals had to do this. And that's what makes us a people. Only the people who did this left. It's like like what Beth said earlier, it really, I always thought of the plagues as forcing the Egyptians to free the Jews. But I now think of the plagues as the miracles God showed the Jews so they would follow. It's like such a, because even this, like you will put the blood in your doorpost so that you will see what I will do. It's all, it's such a different way to look at it. That they had to opt in and that only signs and miracles were going to get of people this battered to that place. You know, I think for years I've gone to uh, intercultural Passover services, black Jewish. Uh, the message is always uh, we were strangers in the land and you know, now we're free and we share the narrative. I've never once heard this ever. That's the only narrative that I hear. Am I wrong? I mean, no. It's that it's it's all about yeah, the, yay job security. That, but this is why. Oh, sorry. That's the official version. Um, it, it's about focus and and because for first of all, for anyone who's not Jewish, the part about becoming a people is less meaningful Absolutely. than the idea of liberation. From slavery, and we have to remember that there were a, most Israelites. I keep saying it, but I'll keep saying it. Most Israelites would have been converted Canaanites. Right. So, so you still, even after you have the birth of the people, you have all these Canaanites who buy into the narrative. They weren't in Egypt. They didn't leave Egypt, but they most of the practicing folk who were doing Passover were never in Egypt, but they knew from suffering. They knew from oppression, from horrible overlords in Canaan. And so this story of throwing off the yoke, you know, of Pharaoh and of oppression was meaningful and they reconstructed it and bought into the new Yudhevafe Passover narrative. So that's what Christians do. They do the same thing. We, you know, like they read themselves and believe me, what do you think they do with the lamb's blood? The blood of the lamb. Of course, the blood of the lamb is how you leave Egypt. Of course, it's a meaningful symbol still for Christians, right? So it's a, they read themselves into the liberation narrative, just like the converted Canaanites did. Um, but for us, the focus in our context is about this is the moment that we become the Jewish people. Right. So at the time, what we referred to as the Hebrews, we weren't the Jewish people. Evrim, correct. And then my question is, what were the You are asking a very interesting question. Write me your email address, and I will send you an article that I just copied out of a biblical journal that says um, what was the religion of the of the Israelites in Egypt. I I haven't read the article yet. (laughs) So for traditionally, I can tell you the rabbis, you know, say that they were living into the Noahide Mm -hmm. laws. 
the laws given to Noah, to all humanity. That, that Abraham would have transmitted. So that would have been transmitted by Abraham, you know, through his clan, right. um, and worshiping yod heh in whatever way they did. But there was yet no commandments until now about other than those about what that meant. Um, of course, you know, Moshe knew already lots of the Torah before it was given, of course. Because uh, Abraham and Yitzchak, they were already observing a lot of this before it was given, because they were tzaddikim, right? They were righteous and except kasher. So um, anyway, so so they dodged the question of what were they doing by saying, well, we know what they weren't probably doing, and but they were in relationship to Yudhei Vavhei. They were observing what they knew, which was the Noahide laws, Um but I'm curious. I am curious about Ivri. And what were the Ivrim doing? What were they about? If they weren't worshiping like the Egyptians, which I can't believe there wasn't syncretistic worship. You can't tell me an oppressed class isn't drawn to worshiping the gods of the host people. You can't tell me that. So, which is why, which is why I think, P.S., and we're getting a little off topic, but this is why I think God and Moshe get so angry at the golden calf. Because they don't call the golden calf Ra or Isis. They call it yud heh vav So what's the problem there? Over there, I think the problem is God and Moshe see that they still can't leave Egypt behind. And they are still drawn to the worship of Egypt. They just call it yud heh vav now. Now it's a Christmas tree. <laughs> right, you know, and so, but they can't let the tree go. And that they are attached to the symbols and the method and the images more than they are to this new way of being called into relationship with the divine. And I think that's the real sin of the Ego Hazahav because I do believe they were, not that I believe the historicity of all of this, I don't mean that, but, but I think even the people telling the story, right, you inherit this idea that the Ivrim would have, of course, been drawn to Egyptian worship. All right, but I want to go to Aviva Zorenberg because it's just gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. So I chopped off, as I am wont to do, the page number on the top left, but the top right will say 167. So make sure you're on that side of your handout. And I'll have Eleanor send it to you today, Bert. So she's talking about the she's talking about darkness that the last plagues are all involving a kind of inability to see the locusts swarm so much that it causes a real darkness. Then we get the you know and we get the plague of course of choshech of the one right before the slaying of the firstborn is the plague of choshech of darkness so dark that it was palpable. Then we get Makat Bechorot, the slaying of the firstborn. That this is triplicate of, of that which interferes with the ability to navigate the world, the ability to see. And the darkness of death, of course, is being invoked here. It's no accident. Darkness comes before the, the plague of death. Um... And so she plays with that. Um, so that's on 166 and 167. Um, we don't have a lot of time, so I think I will let you read that uh, at home. Uh, 
But then go to 170. <coughs> God unleashes the destroyer on Egypt. And once destruction is unleashed, it is you can imagine this kind of power moving through the alleys and the streets of Egypt. And it's an e- evening of destruction. We've talked about the lambs and the firstborn. So some so she says in she quotes Rashi on 1212 and I shall pass through the land of Egypt on that night like a king who passes from place to place and in one passage meaning one trip through there and in one instant all are struck down the drama of that night she writes is an is an engulfing destruction it is for this reason the Talmud asserts that the Israelites are under house arrest that whole night 1222 says, and not one of you shall leave the threshold of his house until morning. Once permission has been given to the destroyer to do damage, he does not discriminate between righteous and wicked. God's leap, God's passing over is the central element in the narrative. When your children ask you, what do you mean by this right? You shall say it is the Passover sacrifice to God because God passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when God smote the Egyptians, but saved our houses. This leap is narrated significantly, not as part of the description of the final night, but as part of the body of law that God gives Moses before the night of redemption, before the real experience of that night, God prepares the people. The blood of the paschal lamb shall be daubed on the lintels and doorposts of Eve's house. And when I see that, I will pass over you. God will see the blood, which is the sign of the people's earliest involvement in God's law and will leap over, will omit the Israelite houses from the general fate. This act of pesicha, of leaping over, of omission, Rashi emphasizes that the Israelite houses were set in amongst the Egyptian houses is an expression of instability. A general law becomes riddled with so many exceptions as to lose coherence. God interferes, as it were, with the terrible consistency of the angel of death who has been given hegemony over the night. Such, drop down a little bit more, such a movement is not dignified. Pesicha is ungainly, limping. The associations are with indecision and disability in Hebrew. Strangely, at the climax of the narrative of omnipotence, after God has demonstrated total power over Egypt, the word pesicha introduces a jarring note. And I shall see the blood. Everything is revealed before God, says Rashi, but meaning God knows where the Israelites live. God doesn't need blood to know where they live. So Rashi's question then is, so why do they need to do this? When I see it, I'll leap over your house. God doesn't need to see it, God forbid. But God said, I am focusing my eyes to see how preoccupied with my commandments you are, and I shall leap over you. So it's not that God doesn't know where they live, God forbid. It's that God will focus on the blood. And in focusing on the blood, that is an indication that they are living into a relationship with God because God said to. The proof that they are doing it because God said so. That 
will cause that focus that that will be the trigger for God to pay attention to that and leap over that house in God's absolute destruction of the firstborn of Egypt. So God was looking for observance here. Not yes, yes. Identification, but observance. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Yes. What God will see is not the blood itself, but the human engagement with God's commandments. It is this that makes God leap. And goes to and goes to Rashi, and the blood shall be to you a sign. To you a sign, but not to others. From here we learn that they placed the blood, to your question earlier, Bert, on the interior of the house. So so a God coming from the outside doesn't even quote see, right? What God sees is their participation in a new way of relating to the idea of reality. And, and also, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep talking. <laughs> the, um, they are choosing to believe. They are choosing to be part of a people. They are choosing freedom. It's not just about beating up the oppressor. It's about the pe- the person actually choosing themselves. That's what I get from like, it makes Passover totally different. <laughs> so, if, so, so if an Egyptian had just happened to have blood on their lentils, so just no, put blood on their lentils, God would not pass over. God would not pass over. No, because it wasn't because it wasn't. It, it was getting back to what you were saying yeah. before. It's the engagement, and we take the first step. And when we take the first right. step, in a sense, here God completes. So, Bert, the reverse of that is the poor putts. Right. That's the good Jew who runs out of blood before. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> <He's> a, <laughs> that's a problem. You can get it from his neighbor. He's better get it from his neighbor, right? Laura? Um, I, I think also it's not just that God can see that they're engaged because presumably this God would know even without seeing you know, who mm. is, so that it has more even to do with how it changes the person themselves to engage in the act themselves. Because God knows if they're with them or not, right, inside their mind. It's something about the doing that changes what's in the person. That gets to the Jewish idea that it's not about the believing, it's about the doing. We are people that believes it is more important, right, to do than to hold something as constantly in potential. We must actualize those things. And the the blood is an, the first time they actualize their relationship to possibility and making it so. Their participation in the possibility makes it so. It activates it. Is there any significance? Crazy to me. <laughs> and it makes me want to rebel and not Okay, you can do that. Okay. 100% you can do it. If we focus on this idea of the fact that the Jew is observant, that is actually listening to God, is there any significance to the blood itself? I mean, there's a lot of... 100%. That God could have. 100%. So, so blood is the life force. Blood is the, the ritual detergent of the, of the ancient world. Hugely symbolic of life and on that night of death. Right, so it's it's both. You lose your blood, you die. So they thought blood was what animated you, which is not to- totally wrong, <laughs> right? So that is what's going to go on the doorpost. I I really do believe this is a night of birthing, 
And in the ancient world, that was a hands-on business. Everybody experienced the blood, so the blood of, of birth. This is the Jewish people. This is the birth of, this is the birth of the Jewish people. They are going to go through the bloody portal. And then what are they going to go through? The Red, the Red Sea. Sea. The water. Water breaks. <laughs> and the water breaks. And they move through. Right, it, it is hundred percent evocative to me of the birth of this of this people. So this this matzah, right, is not the matzah of liberation. But when you eat matzah from now on, you're gonna talk about matzah as the bread of liberation, right? So this interesting juxtaposition. Um, maror. They're eating maror for the first time while they are still experiencing the bitterness of slavery. How much more meaningful is it that we eat it now? They ate it when they were still suffering. Do we have the ability to move into the actions that prove that we believe we can leave our own suffering? Do we believe it? Then eat then put the blood on the door, but you have to do something that shows you believe this suffering can end. This situation can change. There is those forces in the world that we live in relationship to that can enable us to walk out of Egypt. We have to opt in first or those forces can't work on our behalf. Rabbi Rubin said to me when I said, if I come as associate rabbi and I don't get senior rabbi, I have to leave L.A. And he said to me, I'll never forget it as long as I live. If you want a sure thing, stay in Duluth. (laughs) That was certain. Had I stayed there, it was clear. Okay, you want certainty? Stay. All right. Then if not... You gotta be willing to opt in. You gotta pack and you gotta move. And you gotta, if you don't do that, you can't activate the very possibility that you're saying you're longing for. Until you pack and move, you can't be there, Rabbi. You gotta opt in. As terrifying as, as awful as suffering is, hope sometimes is even more terrifying. Right? Taking that first step into what you mean I can't just sit back and complain? It's cold here. <laughs> right? We get very, we get kind of attached, don't we? To our victimhood. It's safe. Because then I don't have to take any responsibility, do I? I'm a slave. I can't turn off my cell phone for 24 hours. Pharaoh won't let me. <laughs> right? So, because if you walk out of Egypt, it's going to mean you make Shabbat. You make the decisions, right? You keep a, a society based in my, says God, laws, my understanding with you, which evolves, we're good reconstructionists, um, about what's ethical and just and right, not what Pharaoh built, which is haves and have-nots. And are you ready for that? Because that's that's big. We always see it as, yay, we're free. Really? 
really. We love Egypt. <laughs> like we, lots of us are attached in lots of ways. My, me, I'm first to say to the ways that we suffer because then if I'm a victim, I, I don't have to risk anything, and it's always someone else's fault, and it's someone else's responsibility. Also, if the signs were meant to provoke the Jewish people in another word to change, the question is how many signs have we been given that we haven't paid attention to? It takes a pretty big one, right? It seems to take a pretty big one for them to finally activate and leave. They've had lots of opportunities, right? But it seems to take, right, we we are both Paro and the Israelites, Right, was my learning about this story this year. I'm really, I'm really into this whole idea that right, we so often make it about us Israelites being victimized and then freed when it, you know, we are par o as well. And um, and it seems to take par o. It, it's got to seem it gets it has to get really bad. We have to have a diabetic coma. We have to whatever you know. We have to have a heart episode. We ha- you know what does it take? We you know destruction. We know. We know. We know. We read. We know. What does it take to quit smoking? But it and so um, it seems to take something pretty big to shift what we even already know is bad for us, um, and to be able to take those first steps into something else. So I'm going to read. The words of the poet Ruth Brin of Blessed Memory. Bo, our Parsha. The last plagues. After a crater erupts, volcanic ash may blacken the sky and make the sunsets lurid for months. There are eclipses of the sun, the stinging darkness of dust storms, and the totality of blackout. All of these remind us of the Egyptian darkness so thick it could be tasted and felt. Could the children of Israel, rebellious and frightened slaves, have lit their homes with the symbolic light of faith or good deeds? Perhaps they cherished a glimmering hope that they could achieve greatness on earth rather than in the pyramids of the dead. Perhaps they blew on the spark of their hope that Israel, the lowliest of peoples, might achieve freedom. In the thick darkness of the Egyptian night, They could not foresee how often the nations would shoulder them out into the shadow, how often their freedom would be reduced to a flicker, burning for a moment after the oil is gone. We pray you renew this miracle for us, that in the darkness of our age, in blackout and rejection, in fear and ignorance, you will cause a light to burn for us, a light of learning a light of freedom, a light of faith, a light of good deeds. These are the lights, we pray, will burn together to make a bright blaze of hope for our world. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org